Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts. In association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. Today I'm joined by Dr. Moon Haradeen and Molly Johnson from the Seacott Nursing Team as we talk about the management of acutely unwell patients, our A to E assessment, and take a few cases from ChatGPT. So hello everybody, welcome to a slightly different podcast that we're running today. This will be a podcast talking about managing the acutely unwell patients and I have a special guest, a particular friend of mine who is joining the podcast and I'm also joined by one of my medical SHO colleagues and we're going to talk about acutely unwell patients, talk about a couple of cases but also talk about how as a medical SHO you can review a patient but also how other services are available to support you seeing the acutely unwell patient which is a very common thing that we come across on the wards. So my name is Dr. Mark Johnson. I'm the Chief Registrar at Airdale General Hospital. I'm the Faculty Lead of the Airwave podcast. I'm going to start off with a person who's currently sat in the room with me and introduce Molly Johnson, who happens to be a Seacott sister, but also my wife in this case. <laughs> and presence. So talk to us a little bit. So you're a Seacott nurse and you work in the same trust as me and yes. Louise, is that correct? Yeah. So a critical care outreach role is, is a collection of nurses who are specially trained, primarily intensive care trained with all a variation of skills. Could be from acute med floor, it could be surgical A&E, but the majority of the time uh, they're intensive care trained. Uh, myself, I'm, I'm intensive care trained. We have a subset of skills that help us manage acutely unwell patients because we have to be able to deal with patients who are from a level one. So from someone who is walking and talking, just receiving antibiotics to somebody who is unresponsive, requiring any manner of respiratory or cardiac support. We do have a fair amount of skills that we can offer and we try and prevent patients from reaching the intensive care. So we are available to the wards to support with any case that comes their way. And there's, there's quite a few CCOP services now set up, certainly within Yorkshire, as most hospitals now have some degree of CCOP services. I think the majority now have some form of it. They're not all called CCOP. They're called the acute response teams, or I think there's one called DART. DART team, yeah. deteriorating adult response, response team. team. Yeah, yeah something like that. But there's, there's a variation of that sort of team in most trusts now. Fantastic. So, yeah, so Molly's going to be joining us and involved in some of these discussions to add a different perspective, but also a perspective that is like a real life perspective, because if you've got a CCOP team, you need to know how to use them, how to put them to to the best ability. But I'm also joined by someone familiar to the podcast, and that's Dr. Muna Haddadeen, who's one of our internal medicine trainees, a very good internal medicine trainee who's joining us. So you say hello, Muna. Hello. Hi. Hello. Happy to and- be joining this podcast. Yeah, so slightly different to our last podcast. We were talking about advanced care planning last time. Now we're going to talk about trying to save people. So a bit of a a bit of a flip. But you you must have some experience dealing with acutely unwell patients in your role as a medical SHO. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, we start seeing sick patients technically from starting working at the hospital from an F1. But higher you go throughout like the years, you get more responsibility and you're expected to do more when there's a sick patient. You're expected to lead when there's no seniors or to manage acutely unwell patients until acutely unwell patients until um, senior input is needed. Until so I show I up. Think that, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, until the medred is um, showing up. So I guess... Um, the responsibilities change, and for an IMT one, it's definitely um, different from how it used to be before. 
Yeah. And so between the two of you, I know you've worked together clinically. And how do you see, Muna, how do you see the role of CCOS as a medical SHO? Are they a hindrance to you? Are they useful to you? How do you see them? Of course, we. I think it's a it's a role that um, I don't think has been there for a very long time. Maybe I haven't seen it for a very long time, but I think it's really beneficial, especially when I think that in a lot of the cases they're called into the scene sometimes even before we get there, and they have a they have capabilities and a set of skills that allows them to put a, sometimes a, almost a full plan for the patient to kind of manage a situation before a doctor arrives, which is really helpful, especially on also on like busy days. I think me and Molly have worked together on really busy days, and Molly has kind of rescued many situations at that point. That's very sweet. Did you agree with that, Molly, that as a senior nurse, you're rocking up there and helping Muna out? We do get called to a, a massive rainbow of situations from can you flush a pick line to my patient is about to die. So like you say, it's a broad spectrum. So we do get trained on quite a few things. But I see myself and our, our team as a support service and an education service to prevent deteriorating patients. So whatever nurses and doctors need, we are there to facilitate. So, and yes, I remember some of our cases, and we have uh, we have had some really busy, interesting shifts. But I don't see myself as being any sort of physician or anyone who makes uh, say a plan for medicine, yeah, it's more I, of a think... holistic plan, like the things that we can start with, the simple things that we can start with. You know, like patient positioning and nebulizers. And it's having that really good nurse there. I, I think, and I suspect Muna agrees that. Nursing quality on the wards is, is often good, but there can be an inability from certain ward nurses to manage acutely unwell patients or know the next steps to take. And having that nurse there that you know is comfortable dealing with unwell patients makes a really, a really big difference. How, how do you feel about that, Muna? I think that I feel pretty happy to arrive to a, to a scene with a sick patient, knowing that a CFAT nurse has already reviewed them or has been there in the scene because there's a lot of things that might seem like they're not the final plan, but they are things that are very important for the acute case or what we should be doing when we arrive to the scene. Even if it's in a lot of the cases, nebulizers can actually make the patient feel much better until we have a proper plan in place, whether it was the patient needing fluid resuscitation or antibiotics or depending on what the case is. But there's a lot of things that could um, kind of um, help with the situation. And I think that no not, I don't think the doctors or the nurses or the the, the advanced nurses like CCOT nurses are alone in this situation with an acute patient. I think we all work together to mm. form a plan that is important important to be put in an acute scenario. And we all work together within our own capabilities and responsibilities to kind of aid for a forming of a final plan. Yeah. So that's how I feel about the, the approach or like the working with CCOT nurses. Yeah, Absolutely. so here's an interesting question. Muna, have you called CCOP before as of your own steed? Have you called them yourself to alert them to an unwell patient, or is it often the nurses that have called them before you've arrived? Um, I think I've, I haven't, I don't think I've had a situation where I've personally called them, but I, I've gotten to a lot of scenarios where they were already called or already there, because usually they're alerted when the, the news is above five, I think. They're already alerted about a patient, and they're pretty fast to arrive to, to an acute scenario, to be fair. I have, in cases, said that some patients may need CPOP nurse input 
faster than they need in a doctor input. I've arrived to loads of cases where CPAP nurses have already been there. I've asked someone to call to call them to arrive before I arrive to a scene. So yeah, I think that they're fairly well reached out to in our hospital. I think. What do you think, Molly? And yeah. from 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 your perspective, Molly, when do you want to be called? If it's not noon of it's calling you, often you're, I assume you get called by the nurses on the ward, is that right? Primarily we get called by nurses. We try and have an air of approachability because we want people to call us. And my personal message to anyone, and I say it frequently when I'm on the wards to people, and I, we do, I do get called by doctors as well, mostly F1s or F2s who perhaps are a little bit unsure when they're still a bit early in their career and they come across someone who's very, very unwell. I have had that situation happen to me. But as for the category of being called, we do on black and white, we do have a policy that we need to be alerted for anyone who's scoring five, uh, news of five and above or a three in one category. So someone who's profoundly hypotensive, but everything else is fine, is still something to worry about, for example. What I do try and portray to say to people, though, is I don't just want to hear about news scores. Your intuition matters to me as well. So if you've just got a gut feeling, it's probably right. And I want to know about it because I've been in that situation where I just want somebody to listen. And my patient has been unwell, even though the news score is probably about three or four. You you learn to, to, to do the look, listen, feel approach. If you look at your patient and think, oh, you're great, you're unwell, you, something's going to happen. You're probably right. And that is something that I try to drill into people as well, is if you've got a feeling and you're doing everything right and everything points to, oh, it's okay, I still want to know about it. And I'm more than happy to come and support and see if I've got the same gut feeling, because I have had that as well. And I think that's an important point, isn't it, is gut feeling intuition really does count in these environments. I, I want to briefly mention the news criteria because it's a news of five. Is that correct? Five or above on three in one category. Yeah, and actually, uh, I suspect Muna, you feel the same about this. I, I, I like the news score. I think it's great to highlight patients who run well, but it should not be the be all and end all in terms of decision making that you that you do as a, as a doctor, be it a junior doctor or a senior doctor on awards. And part of that is you can be really unwell with the news of three, or you can be reasonably well with the news of seven or eight. And actually, clinical judgment really matters. And it's good to be familiar with the news chart. But I see news as a way of escalating between people. One of my common gripes during handover is don't talk to me in news scores. Talk to me about what actually is worrying you. Is the blood pressure the thing that's worrying you? Is the whole picture wrong? Is the patient deathly unwell? The news will flag that up. But I want to speak in specifics. And the doctor language and nursing language can be slightly different. And nurses tend to communicate a bit more in news scores and are taught to do that. Whereas doctors, I like to talk about blood pressures and respiratory rates because those things matter a bit more to me. I think as a senior doctor using CCOT, I agree very much with what Muna said. From my perspective, it's great to see you there because <laughs> so many of those... We have some uses. <laughs> you have some uses. It's so many of those difficult tasks that it can be difficult for a nurse who's very busy with many other patients who might not be sick but are challenging. So now you've got a nurse that's dedicated to the task. It's really important. And one of the big points when you become a medical registrar is bridging that gap between ward-level care and the care that you'll give them a level two or level three environment, be that NIV. Having a nurse that's competent in NIV, I can't turn the machine on. I know all the numbers, mm-hmm. but I can't turn the machine on for toffee. Or having a patient I need to start inotropes on and knowing that there's a competent nurse that will be able to help me set up the arterial line kit, 
know what to do with medication, know how to start the medication and be there till the patient's transferred to intensive care is a really important point for me. We are definitely girls for those situations. <laughs> yes. And as I say, I think every CCOT team, so I've worked in a variety of different hospitals within Yorkshire. I think every CCOT team is very approachable. I think every CCOT team is very nice. And I think most of the people having an experienced nurse by your side in most situations is rarely a bad thing. It can lead to some more arguments and discussions, <laughs> but it's rarely a bad thing in my experience. Okay, so moving on, let's talk a little bit about that assessment. So you, starting with CCOT, so you've been called to that patient, you're on the ward, the nurse has said to you, the news is seven, I'm worried about the patient, they look unwell. Molly, what's your approach when you arrive to that patient? First and foremost, I want to know what that new score breakdown is and do I need to rush straight to the bedside? Because there's, there is an element of do I need to intervene right now or do I have... 30 seconds to read up on the patient's background and history. So if, for example, the SATs are 50, I'm going to go straight to that patient and intervene. Uh, Not happy with SATs are 50? Not usually. (laughs) (laughs) And I have had that. I have had the best S-bar in the world, and then there's a we found them with SATs of 35, and I'd like to know about that one. (laughs) You want to to finish your coffee and then come along? (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, I tend to approach with what, what is what is the danger. And if they say the, the patient is hyperventilating or the SATs are very bad, I would like to then go straight to the patient and then I will start my A2E assessment. So talk to me about your A2E assessment. What, what's your steps? In brief, obviously, the A2E assessment is different for every person. There's a reasonably regimented format. Talk me through your A2E as a CCOT sister. Well, I don't really think it's that different to, for, for you guys because it's... Uh, I don't know, I do some weird stuff clinically. <laughs> uh, A2E, well, I start with the patient. Are they talking to me? Are they conscious? So if they're not talking to me, I assess the airway. Do I hear gargling sounds? Do I hear absence of sound, more importantly? If they're talking to me, I'm happy to move on. Then I go on to breathing. And you get a lot of that, don't you? So if a patient's talking to you, but it's talking full sentences, you kind of get a sense that being... Yeah, so if you've got somebody who's awake and talking, or they're talking partial sentences, or they're wheezing, or, you know, they've got some sort of interrupted pattern of breathing, then you know that there could be something you need to intervene on. And you don't really waste time with C, D and E. You have to sort of pause in the algorithm and maybe correct something. So if you can hear stridal for example or somebody who's gargling on secretions then you know you need to stop and intervene so get your suction is that ready is there something in the mouth do we need to clear an airway do we need to get adjuncts do we need to put a crash call out first and foremost because an airway is at the top for the reason that you know it's the thing that will kill you first and it is a fun question Muna how comfortable are you doing suction well, to be fair, um, I think that I would, I usually prefer someone else to be doing it, but uh, with suction, <laughs> you just have to kind of like, you just have to kind of see where you're going and kind of, to be fair, with suction, because you're not going anywhere, you can't see, it's not it that, it's not that, it should be safe. Yeah. It, it is safe, I think, for everyone. It's just that I think that usually kind of nurses jump on this um, and take that, like, uh, take, that, take, take that task into a, like... It's, it's a funny um, point, so I, I was thinking... During my career, how many airways have I suctioned as a medical registrar? Um, I don't think I've suctioned many airways. Yeah, I've done I a few on intensive care, but I think that's about it. I've lost count of the amount I've done. Yeah, so <laughs> but that's interesting about the different skill sets that people bring and different experience. So, so you've assessed it, so you're happy the airway is good. 
Talk to me about your B assessment. B assessment, I'd want an OBS machine. Uh, I'd like to know what the saturations are. I do, I know there's a, there's a subset of nurses who kind of clock 18 and 20 on the respirate, but I'm one of the creepy ones that will stand at the door and watch them breathe. It's, it's amazing how many respirates in a hospital at 16. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a phenomenon. Or <laughs> well, 16 men, 17 and back to 16. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'd be, you'd be amazed the amount of times where... I get there and I just watch them breathing and the, it's been 20 or 21 and actually it's 35 and mm. it's not okay. So you really did the importance of respirate. I try to educate my nurses and students and anyone else is incredibly important because your respirate can tell you so much about your patient. And you do, you're doing that not so most doctors will assess the respirate at the bedside. Mm. Normally speaking to the patient, you do that before you went to the room. I tend to, yeah, because I, like you, like you say, you know, some people have a bit of a, a variation of how they like to do things. So if I go to assess somebody just as a, a generic um, visit, for example, like a step down, I, like I say, it, it sounds really creepy when I say it. I tend to just kind of stand at the edge of the door if they're just sitting there watching their phone or something. I will just watch them breathe for a solid 30 seconds. You don't ever do this with me, do you? <laughs> Check your breathing from time to time, but that's it. But I, I will do that because that is the most accurate respirate you're going to get because as soon as that patient has clocked eyes with you, they're either going to start talking, they get a bit anxious, and it all becomes very artificial. So that is one thing I do before I even clap eyes with the patient and say, hello, this is my name. Are you having a good listen to the chest after that then? Absolutely. Is that a part of your remit? It is. I've got a shiny little stethoscope that uh, I, oh, I, got quite, <laughs> I like yeah. to use very often. Uh, and that, that tells us quite a lot as well. Because like I say we've got, um, we've got experience with suctioning, we've got experience with positioning and nebulizers and airway adjuncts. So if I've got somebody with an MP airway, I'm comfortable doing a bit of deep suctioning. So if I can hear something on the chest that I feel competent with maneuvering and being able to suction out, I'll absolutely listen out for that so that I can try and rectify it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you've got a few more tools in a way than some doctors would have with providing that, that B assessment. Yeah. I like to think that we do have quite a few uses when it comes to A and B because being intensive care trained we do have experience with like say MP airways or Goodell's manoeuvring, suctioning and all sorts we do come across it quite a lot. And, and then so, so, you, so you said you're taking the OBS machine to the patient so that's your that's your blood pressure that's your heart rate mm -hmm. a few bits and pieces what else makes up your C assessment as a C-cut nurse? Uh, input output, our favourite thing in uh, the world. I'm currently I'll be in the works of providing a bit of bedside education for all the staff on the wards. That's something to look out for. Watch out. Um it well it's one of the it's one of our tools, like I say, respirate. Um fluid balance I think is up there because it's it's one of the things that can tell us so early on uh, how sick a patient can be. Have they peed in 12 hours? If the answer is no, do we need to do a bladder scan? How much have they drunk? Is it concentrated? Do they look dry? Are they hypotensive? There's so many questions can go alongside a fluid balance chart, which is why we try and educate so much on it, because it's one of our... Like the news, it's one of our early warnings is uh, an out, a urine output. And is cap refill something you assess? Uh, I will assess a cap refill. Um, I'm not going to lie, sometimes I do forget it if the patient looks comfortable yeah. and well and they're pink. 
if they're not very pink, absolutely. I tend to, if I do assess it, I'll do peripheral and I'll do central because mm. it gives me a bit of a gauge on how shut down a patient could be. Yeah. And temperature, I say sometimes that peripheral vasoconstriction in that patient that's really unwell, yeah. or even sometimes that septic patient that's a bit too warm and perfused, their picture yes. can make you think that something's not quite right. So anyway, so D&E, we'll, we'll skip D&E because D&E are never very exciting. And I know I should say that. Because that to a neural nurse. I know, because as a, as a nurse who can assess GCS better than anyone else can, <laughs> I think it's a bit of an insult. But Muna, so briefly, we'll go through your A to E, but how does that A&E stack up compared to yours? Are those, are those many of the same points you'd be looking to hit? I think that A to E, to be fair, when when we're taught A to E, it's, it's things that you have to look out for that will give you information about what could be shut down or what could be the problem. I think it's it's very similar to what Molly just said about how I would go about my A to E. And I know that D and E are usually kind of like, you don't really want to talk about them, but they're also really, really important because they could be the reason for why someone is um, really acutely deteriorating. I think A to E is really important to go through, but also to intervene in every in every letter and as as much as needed or as suitable for that in that case. For for example, I, I wouldn't jump from a letter to the next if I don't intervene for the thing that I find is the problem. As Molly said, if I'm feeling that I need to suction a patient, I would start suctioning before I move to B because if the airway is not working, then the breathing is definitely have a problem as well. Interventions yeah. in the girl along, isn't it? So so what what, what yeah. if you were to describe to me, so we'll go past the danger and the assessment at the bedside, kind of the initial look at what what really makes up an A assessment for you as a medical SHO? An A assessment? Um yeah. well as I said, if if you're if my patient is speaking to me and I feel like their airway is open, that's good. But if I feel like there is um strider or wheeze or um I feel like that my patient is not unable to breathe from a problem in a in an upper upper <laughs> problem. If they need suctioning, then that's one of the things. If they need airway adjuncts, they should be promptly and, and uh, imminently put in. Because if, if the problem is in, in an upper airway, in like a something that I can fix with a, an oropharyngeal or a nasopharyngeal and airway adjunct, then that should be done as soon as possible. So, and I think so that, are you comfortable with most airway adjuncts, would you say? I think I've done my ALS training, and I think this is part of anyone that did ALS training. And I think, yeah, I, I would feel fairly competent to put any airway adjunct. And I think that gives some of our F1s and F2s, the people that haven't actually still done um, ALS, some prompting on how to use airway adjuncts. It's a really um, important skill, really isn't important. it? I, I think, it's really yeah. important. Yeah. And it could, so, it could solve a, an acutely unwell patient's problem or even keep them, or give them some time until a senior has arrived. So it or is pretty just... important to deal with A, yeah? You want the airway first, uh, that yeah. yeah, so so moving on to B then. So you're happy that A, or we've managed A to, to the best of your ability. What are you looking for in B as a medical SHO? As I said, I think Molly has mentioned, has covered most of the things that we'd be looking for. I think the interventions would be the, the difference, I think, between our A to E assessments, just in the sense that I think because of the interventions are sometimes restricted to certain staff, the CCOT nurse can identify a problem but not necessarily be able to intervene. And that's why I think in terms of assessing the patient, I think we have a very similar approach to patients. It's just about the Interventions. Possibility, the interventions, yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair. 
anyone can put on a 15 liters non-rebreather mask. But for example, if I think that my patient's chest sounds silent, if I'm thinking of a pneumothorax, if I'm thinking there's maybe even tension pneumothorax, there might uh, there might be a, an imminent need for a paracentesis. These things might need imminent interventions, as I said. In terms of ATE, Molly has mentioned everything. It's just about what we can do about she's, these she's things. She's smiling away at that note. But, but what, one thing to mention, Muna, so you talk about the 15 liters non-rebreather, and this is something that comes up sporadically when I'm on call. Would you ever worry, if you saw a patient with some well, would you ever worry about starting someone on 15 litres non-rebreathe? I'm thinking about those pesky COPD patients who are saturating 88 92 normally. Do you ever worry about putting 15 litres on a patient? I think I, I, I would put them on a 15 litres non-rebreather mask initially. I would finish my assessment, and when I'm done with my assessment, I can reassess. But to begin with, if a, if a patient that is, well, normally on a scale one or on a scale two is desaturating from their scale, I would need to put a non-rebreed mask just until I finish my assessment and I know where the problem is and which letter and what can I do about it. So, but it also depends on the overall clinical picture of the patient. So moving on to, to C then. So what else do you think you bring? Because talked a little bit about those interventions you can offer. You can do things like start fluids and you can you know, give other medications that may be useful. Is there anything else in C that Molly might not do that you might think of doing? In C, I'm not only looking for interventions that could that could solve a problem as much as also diagnose it in the first place. So in mm. C, I would ask for people to get to get me two large bore cannulas. I want IV access. I want to get some bloods, maybe AVGs or VVGs, depending on what the problem is and what I'm looking for. As Molly said, you'd be looking into input and output. And in terms of output, if I'm thinking that my patient is, hasn't been getting a lot of, having a lot of output, then I'd be thinking about a bladder scan and start a blood, and if the bladder scan is fine and I'm thinking that my patient isn't actually urinating. You mentioned about the ABG. What is it on the ABG that you're looking for that helps you with the C part of the assessment? So I think that sometimes the problems might be in B. But in C, because I'm just looking into the circulation, I'd get, I'd want to know if my patient is acidotic, is he, uh, is they, are they alkalotic, what kind of problems I have in the background. And I think ABGs give us a lot more information than a VBG. And, and it's important to get it if you think that their pH or CO2 or bicarb status are important in that clinical picture. Mm. So it might not always be important. Sometimes I could just go with a VBG, get the lactate, look into some um, electrolytes, but not necessarily get an ABG because an ABG is also a doctor needs to do an ABG and it sometimes is painful for the patient. It's sometimes uncomfortable and you don't need to do an ABG every time. Sometimes you don't, you don't you're not looking for the information that an ABG can give you. So uh, a VBG would be fine at that point. Can someone see COT can can team provide ABGs? And there's some training for it, isn't there? Yeah, as long as you've had the training, we can do them. I unfortunately don't have the training yet. <laughs> I, I think it's one of these things, but it, it's hopefully ABGs have become a service that CCOT can provide, hopefully. It's something we are currently working towards in Airedale. There's a, there's a, there's a policy that we're working towards, I think, changing or tweaking a little bit because yeah. there's a certain subset of years in that one, but yeah, there, we, there, some of us can do ABGs, but others can't. Just to kind of round this I've actually off. not had a, an instance where an ABG was needed and someone took it off my hands. Never. No, I think <laughs> ABGs, sure ABGs are still very much a doctor task, aren't they? It's just, it, yeah. 
it's, wor- it's working out which patient benefits the most from the ABG. And there's very few instances where that I'd need an ABG where the ABG wouldn't have at least sufficed in the first instance. Even with a CO2, and the rule I tell people is if a CO2 is low on a VBG, I don't need an ABG to prove that there's respiratory failure because the SATs should tell me that. So actually, VBGs do tell you a lot of useful information if you're willing to put the context together. And as you mentioned, Muna, the lactate and metabolic alkalosis or acidosis, I can work out my anion gap based on the presence of the lactate and the ketones. And actually, that's m- as much information as I need in a decent number of my sick patients. And I think it's kind of overall, I think you guys have covered all the points I would mention in A, B and C. I kind of lament mentioning D and E because they are parts of the assessment, but are so variably done. That blood sugar is always important. And as there's always mm-hmm. someone around who's who's got their login, they're the most useful people in a hospital. And then E has just an overall part of the assessment, but you'd hope that E would stand out as you go through more through your secondary survey, as we would call it, and pick out the bits that may be missing. But overall, I think you guys have covered all the points. I think a good A to E assessment will often pick up a majority of the immediate problems. And certainly if there was an issue on that A to E, but either you had performed Molly or even Moon had performed, I want to then know about it as a medical registrar so I can make decisions. I think the joy of being a medical registrar is often you two have done all the work and I just show up at the end and put my signature on the bottom of the page to say that I've witnessed it all. Thank you for listening to The Airwave. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favourite platform and look out for our content on YouTube. Part 2 will be uploaded next week where we discuss a variety of cases taken from ChatGPT.